Welcome everyone, I'm Heath. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to Host of Horror Special Episode. Woo! This episode we are talking about films that inspired us to get into the industry. To, uh, I don't know, like movies that got us into critiquing, reviewing, and, and just giving our passion towards something like uh, filmmaking. Basically films that wanted, taught, like warranted us to be filmmakers. Yeah. yeah. I'm very excited for this one because i feel like i have an interesting perspective on it because i have my two films that like really got me into it but a lot of my actual experience as well has come from music videos so i have more music videos that i'm like here's my inspiration rather than you know films but these two films that i'm about to talk about today they've really stuck out to me and kind of shaped my interpretation of what films should be so i'm excited to talk about it yeah and mine are like i i had to go through a whole laundry list of movies i thought about talking about today how did how did you come with your two like what what were the criterias that got you down to the just the two that we're talking about? Mostly just they stuck out to me in ways that I told myself I want to emulate those ways. And they just really stuck out to me over the years. From whenever I saw them, I was like, This is it. This is what I want to do as a filmmaker. Kind of stuff like that. Yeah. Mine were one was super obvious. Like, as soon as we decided to do this episode, I was like, yep, I'm talking about this one. Um, the other one, I had to... Basically, I broke it down to, okay, what are some of my favorite movies? And that brought me to, you know, like, uh, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Kill Bill, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, No Country for Old Men. Um, we get it. You like Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> no Country for Old Men is the Conan Brothers, Okay. We get it. And Lord of the Rings We get it. You like our tours. We get it. You like blockbusters coming from old white men. We get it. JK, JK. (laughs) (laughs) You should see the look on Heath's face right now. The other offense that I just gave him is great. I don't know. We're going to call it quits today. Um, Just just go home, Jay. Just go home. I'm so angry. All right, all right, all right. Let's go on. Anywho. (laughs) So I went from movies that I love, that are some of my favorite movies, to movies I grew up with. Like, I grew up with the the Star Wars prequels, uh, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, Jurassic Park 1, 2, and 3, movies like that. And finally, I had to... Break it down to not only movies that were essential to my childhood, but movies that are also a movie that is also my favorite. So that's how I came to my two. I have one that was super obvious and one I had to think about. And I landed on two that I'm very happy to talk about today. All right. What are they? What are they? What are they? What are they? Okay. uh, I'll do my first one and then I'll let you do your first one and then we'll, we'll go back and forth. Okay, okay. So the first one, will, I'm just going to go with the, the obvious one, the one that was super obvious for me. When I was a kid, I was going to be a paleontologist. I loved dinosaurs. Absolutely loved dinosaur films. Jurassic Park was like one of my favorite shits ever. And growing up, I would spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house, and they had a little like rent a VHS store. Like it was kind of like a shack in the middle of Stonewall, but (laughs) ran by an old couple, but we would go there every weekend. My grandpa would rent a VHS and I would rent a VHS. And homegrown. (laughs) Was it homegrown blockbuster? Yeah. No dude. It literally, it was like one of those sheds you get from like, uh, uh, home Depot, but they just had it full of, uh, VHSs. Oh my God. Yeah. It was cool. I liked it. Anyway, but I, I got, like, I watched uh, just anything I could find that was, like, dinosaur-related. Like, I watched the Komodo movie, uh, uh, Connoisseur, or uh, Con- Conivorous, I think it was. It was, like, dinosaurs brought back from time, and then they attacked, like, the city or some shit. It was a weird little movie. Oh, God. But in the middle of that little time period of mine, I found probably the coolest 
looking dinosaur I have ever seen in my entire life with the backdrop of a giant plant monster and the one of the most gorgeous cover arts that I've ever seen in my entire life. And I brought it home. It was a foreign film and it was awfully dubbed. Like the dubbing was super bad, but I didn't care because the dinosaur was cool. That freaking flower turned into an amazing monster and it made me fall in love with a franchise that is like 65 years in the making. And that is Godzilla versus Biolante. Ooh, you got me going there because I was almost fully expecting for you to be like, you know, I'm just going to say Jurassic Park because I love dinosaurs and all of that. So I was like, okay, cool. And then he was like, Godzilla. And I was like, oh, this is where we're going with this. Yes. (laughs) I totally already knew, but you know playing it for yeah it's 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 not like i don't have a giant godzilla mural in my apartment you literally found a godzilla toy from the middle of the road at a random gas station somewhere and brought it home yeah godzilla's in my dna i'm attracted to it i'm like a magnet for godzilla shit See, he's a monster fucker. Yeah. <laughs> he's a Godzilla fucker to be exact. <laughs> but so. no, like I I did love Jurassic Park growing up. Like I loved the first one. I loved uh Land of the Lost. Uh there was a I think it was like Dinotopia, a sci-fi show with like dinosaurs in it. I loved that shit growing up. It's awful now, but I loved it growing up. And it just I don't know, like I was going to the VHS and I, I think I rented everything that was a dinosaur movie. And they finally had, and it's it's really cool, the art for uh, Godzilla versus Biolante. All the Heisei era Godzilla mm. arts are beautiful, mind-blowingly beautiful. But I probably, I know I stole that VHS. I never returned it. It was mine. <laughs> um, my grandparents, I think, just ended up buying it or something like that. I don't know, because I was not giving it up. <laughs> and I'm so upset, because I wish I had it for my collection, But I my because uh, I had one of those TVs that had the VHS built oh, into it. Oh, did it get stuck in there? It got stuck in there. Oh, no. Yeah. And being a child, I was like, well, my movie's messed up, so now I don't even want the box art. I wish I kept the box art. At least the box art. Oh, that sounds like it's been so pretty to look at. It's gorgeous. I'll have to show you after the show. Um, no, it's amazing, and it's such a good movie. Like it's a uh, 1989, uh, about five years after they relaunched Godzilla. So you had the the Showa era, which started out with a uh, 1954 Gojira. And from there, it progressively got more campy, cheesy, more more geared towards children. And they finally called it quits. And I think they were, like, done with Godzilla for, like, a while. And something happened to where they wanted to relaunch the brand and bring it back to its original roots. And that's where Godzilla Returns comes from. So many Godzilla movies. There's so many. And <laughs> and honestly, not even half, in my opinion, not even half are really good. Uh, like, I would say, like, good, good movies. I mean, I love Godzilla, so I have fun watching them. But you're not going to get a whole lot out of most of I them. I mean, they're not, like, cinematic masterpieces. Well. Gojira is. Shin Godzilla is one. But... Shin Godzilla is one, too. I would say, honestly, even the Heisei, except for, like, Space Godzilla, is... They're pretty good. Even Space Godzilla is pretty good. He like morphs the city into his own little crystal lair type thing. It's kind of cool. See, <laughs> I my most of my experience with Godzilla comes from like the Hollywood versions of Godzilla. Of course, I already know about like all of the Japanese Godzillas because I'm a freaking nerd like that. But most of my like growing up, I'm so used to the Hollywood versions of it, like American Hollywood versions of uh, Godzilla. So I remember like the little green 
the Godzilla font in the 90s. Oh, that the, was... the Emmerich film? Mm-hmm. I was weird. I actually, I saw uh, Godzilla vs. Bailante before Emmerich, uh, the 1999 Godzilla came out. You... So I knew about Godzilla before any of my friends knew about Godzilla, and I was actually disappointed <laughs> in the 99 film. I liked it because giant dinosaur and I was a dinosaur kid, but at the same time I was like, this, it's not Godzilla. It's not the same because, you know, Americans, we have a tendency to mess with things that aren't from a different culture. So we have feel the need to basically remake things. So basically the 1999 Godzilla was here. Here's the Godzilla of Japan. And just transport it to like San Francisco or something. Uh, it was New York. Or New York. And like, Emmerich, yeah. Emmerich didn't even want to make a Godzilla movie. He just wanted, like, he was already on contract with uh, TriStar, and TriStar got the rights for Godzilla from Toho. And so basically, he used that as a vehicle to make his own disaster movie. Because that's what Emmerich does he, Independence Day and shit like that. He, he makes disaster films, that's what he's good at. And honestly, if it wasn't a Godzilla film, it would still be bad, but it wouldn't be as bad. Like, it, it's a niche little iguana turns into a monster movie. Yeah, it's not bad, but it's also iconic. Like, I feel like the 1999 movie is iconic for bringing awareness to Godzilla to the West. Because if it wasn't for that, a lot of people who wouldn't even know what Godzilla is maybe besides like whatever was on a you know TV and whatnot back in the day because I know there were some channels that may have shown old Godzilla movies be we like had- oh Japanimation oh all of that <laughs> stuff like in the same vein as like King Kong or stuff like that. We had HBO and they showed a lot of the old Heisei or not Heisei but uh, Shoho era um, movies. Oh, so man. I remember seeing like a. Like a lot of movies, like uh, Son of Godzilla, Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla. Um, I think I saw uh, Godzilla versus Hedera on there. I, I've pretty, I've seen every Godzilla movie, but most of the Showa era movies that I saw were from uh, as a kid mm. watching them on HBO. But Godzilla versus Biollante, it's emotional. It's dark the uh effects are amazing like they literally they had a of course it's a guy in a suit uh it's it's suitmation but what made it cool is all the little vehicles were made like they were handmade uh animatronics so all the little tanks like maser tanks and the helicopters they were actually rc copters that they strapped with firework missiles that they would actually shoot at the guy in the suit Oh my Every, god. Yeah, no, everything was practical. Um, I think there was one point where they were gonna have Biolante eat Godzilla and they were gonna make it like claymation or uh CGI or something like that. And they scrapped it because it didn't look good to the rest of the practical stuff. But everything you see on there except for the acid spit, the acid spit and the um the atomic breath were brought to life using CGI, but they actually spit acid uh, from Biolante onto Godzilla. So they used real acid and then exposed CGI on top of that. Not like real acid, but like green gunk. Oh, okay. To, yeah. to those in the audience who aren't aware of what we mean when we say, you know, Showa or Heisei, you think you should explain that for a little bit before you go forward? Because I know yeah. they'd be confused by that. So Showa, I forget the exact timeline it ends at. Uh, it's the it's the tail end of the 70s. And uh, what it is, is you have like Gojira. And Gojira is a 1954 film. And it was supposed to be just a one and done. But it made so much money, literally the next year they came out with Godzilla Raids again where he fights Aang Giris. They had that, and then a bunch of other movies came out, like Rodan and Mothra, that showed basically Japan had a market for kaiju movies. And so they ran with that. And the biggest, best kaiju they had was Godzilla. Kids loved Godzilla. And so they ran with that. They made all their movies heavily focused on uh, on the uh, kids aspect of the audience. Kids and uh, females. Because uh, the female attendance rate for Japan was bigger than uh, men. 
So it, all the Showa films were really focused on children and uh, the female audience. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of the 70s, they, they were kind of done with Godzilla. They wanted to move on and thought it kind of lost its spark after really, really bad, just really bad movies. And the Heisei era came out in 84, which is my favorite era of Godzilla, where you have uh, Godzilla Returns, 84, and then 89, Godzilla vs. Biollante. Then you had uh, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, Godzilla vs. Mothra, and then Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, I think it was. Uh, then you had Space Godzilla, and then you had the movie that killed Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Destroya. Killed? Yeah, Godzilla dies in the 1995 uh, Godzilla vs. Destroya. But it's cool because his son comes back. <laughs> and so basically what you're telling me is that if things are chronological, you mean to tell me that the 1999 Godzilla film is basically Godzilla's son? Son of Godzilla? No, 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 no. <laughs> so it's, it's, there really is no chronological or, um, um, order. So especially when you get into the millennial, uh, millennia films. Mm. So if you were to go to, in chronological order, you would have all of Showa. All of Showa is Godzilla uh, 1954 all the way to where it ends. Mm. And then Heisei picks up right after um, Gojira. So you have Gojira 1954 and then skip all of uh, Showa and go straight into Godzilla Returns 1984. Oh. And and then the Heisei, it's loose, but it's there. It all connects. So you can actually watch all the Heisei films and kind of get a feel for somewhat of a continuity. Then you had the millennial era where after 1999, Toho was so upset that they need, they weren't going to make a Godzilla film. They were going to rest on it and let America kind of take over. They were so pissed off and so heartbroken at what Emmerich and TriStar did that they were like, nope, we're going to release a movie in 2000 and call it Godzilla Millennial or Millennia. And basically, it was like, yeah, no, that Godzilla never happened. There's actually, um, I think it was 2004, uh, Godzilla Final Wars. It was the last of the millennial Godzilla films. Oh, my God. Where Godzilla goes on a rampage, and basically all the monsters in its its, uh, ranks and its rogues gallery, he fights, including what they call Zilla, the TriStar Godzilla. They were not messing around. They were. They took no, no, no. They took the. They they called it Zilla because, in their words, the TriStar film took the god out of Godzilla. Damn. So they called it Zilla, and you have Zilla running at Godzilla. Godzilla tail whips its ass into uh oh, what's that famous orchestra place in uh Sydney? Uh, Not, (laughs) not the Sydney Orchestra. Yes. Tail oh whips God. his ass into that, God. and then just atomic bre- like the atomic breaths him kills him. The fight lasts maybe like 10, 15 seconds. They were mad. <laughs> they were big mad. And then Millennial was done after uh to, after uh, Final Wars, and now we have the Shin Godzilla. Which if they do a sequel, which I really hope they do, we'll have the Shin era of Godzilla. And then, of course, you got the legendary um, Monsterverse. Yeah, it's like the the Monsterverse now, and then Monsterverse versus the Shin era. And I want to say Hideki Anno was a director for it. For Shin. And... He did uh, um, Evangelion. mm -hmm. And you can tell the influence from that he got from older, you know, generations of Godzilla in Shin Godzilla, but man, I think the best thing I liked about God, like the early Godzilla films was, was how political it is. Mm-hmm. Is like here's this huge freaking monster destroying the whole city. How are we gonna do it? And it just goes to show like how you have to go take everything up the ranks and and you have to wait on a bu- uh, bureaucratic process to move forward so you can try to beat the crap out of this monster who is like literally killing everything within a millisecond. Yeah, and it shows the fallacies of the government. Yeah, because it's basically a critique on like how the government reacted to the earthquake, which led into that giant tsunami, and Ooh. also the uh, nuclear meltdown. So a lot of citizens had critiques on how the government handled the situation. So Shin Godzilla is basically a political satire 
based around that. Even a lot of um, Godzilla's attacks, which in the first uh, Gojira was based, uh, like all the destruction you see is eerily reminiscent of pictures you would see after the uh, bombing of Hiroshima, where in Shin Godzilla, his first like attack or his first time he's on land, it looks eerily similar to videos you saw of the flooding after that giant earthquake. And then the radiation and everything is basically the meltdown. So they actually, with Shin, they brought it back to its roots. And I really, really love that. So not only is it a political satire, they brought Godzilla back to what it originally stood for, which was human negligence. Mm, I remember watching it in theaters like it was like a one a one day kind of thing and it was wild because i i've never really seen a godzilla movie in theaters before because i wasn't really a big fan of the monsterverse something time out but seeing this was really wild because it was just it was a different experience from what i remember as a kid so it was like you're going back to the roots from back before I was even thought of and just seeing it was just a different experience altogether. So I just really enjoyed the whole thing. And I like, I, I, I'm a big fan of like how, um, you have to add pol- politics to so many different things whenever, you know, natural disasters or almost any kind of disaster happens going through the bureaucratic process of like, oh, we got to have meetings upon meetings upon meetings. They have to go up the ranks to basically just say, hey, do we have permission to fire? Because <laughs> you still can't break orders. And man, that's that's wild to me. That is some pretty wild shit there. Yeah. So that's that was my introduction, not only to Godzilla films and turned me into a Godzilla fan, but I, I loved everything about Godzilla versus by the practical effects. The fact that it has like a James Bond subplot, every character from as minute, I mean, there's a character that maybe has like 10 minutes of screen time, but he's the only character in the entire movie that talks shit to Godzilla. Like he literally, he, he talks shit to Godzilla's face right before Godzilla kills him. And it's like the baddest, coolest thing ever. So even little minute characters get personality. So as far as like filmmaking goes, I actually look back to this because it's not only an inspiration to me, but it's one of my favorite Godzilla films of all time. Mm. It's, I, I look back to it to teach me lessons on writing in general, because if, if you can make a movie as silly as a giant dinosaur fighting a giant flower, not only entertaining, but impressive and well-written, you're doing something right. See, my picks are way different from <laughs> his. So, yeah. So, what's your pick? What's, what's so, your... my obviously, it sounds like my picks are way more grounded in reality than yours are. Because, man, mine are, like, dry. My this first movie is something that really resonated to me storytelling wise because it's a story it's a coming of age story and I like coming of age story because I feel like I wasn't really able to have a decent coming of age time back when I was growing up so seeing those kind of reminds me of the nostalgia that I wish I had it's kind of like a warning for like I wish I had stuff like that when I was a teenager. Or, you know, this reminds me of when I was a teenager. So, this one is Moonlight by uh, Barry Jenkins. So, basically, I didn't really watch it at first. I was like, okay, it's there. It's cool and all of that. But then I watched it on a plane ride home one day. I forgot what I was doing. I think it was, um, no, I was actually, I think, coming from a school trip. It was coming from a school trip out of the country. So I remember watching this. This is back when I was starting to kind of get into film as a filmmaker, like as a serious filmmaker, way before I actually even started doing being on set and whatnot. And I watched it and I was crying by the end of it. Like I was crying in a plane and my um, my passengers looked at me. <laughs> um, basically, it's, it's a coming of age story about, you know, a black queer person who grows up in the hood it basically is kind of like has no really father figure has someone who comes in it's kind of like with no prejudice no kind of like 
no preconceived notions or anything about the person that you know grows up with this kid and you see it has this kid just kind of grows up and a lot of times whenever queer kids grow up especially when they're black we are always have these preconceived notions about what it is to be black what it is to be a man we our stances on masculinity are heavily rooted in either religion or very stoic societal roles that we've always played so seeing a movie like moonlight basically chronicling all of these in a way that is like a three-act structure kid teen adult it it hit, struck a nerve it really struck a nerve for me because i related so much to the main character and forgive me i think his name's Tariq. i can't remember <laughs> right off the top of my head but man <laughs> it just really makes me want to um I'm getting yeah, kind I can of choked see that. You're getting very thinking. emotional. <laughs> I getting choked up thinking about it because it's like I, I get really involved. It feels like emotionally with my work. I hold my work hold dear to my heart a lot. So seeing basically me, like someone like me on screen, living a life that was somewhat similar to mine. Well, thank God it's not that similar to mine because drugs are a whole whole thing that i'm not gonna get into but seeing someone basically coming to to their own but have to basically like abandon those um feelings and abandon those like you know that growth you've had because you know societal norms and whatnot and being succumbed to those it really sucks but it was good to see that representation on screen and from a, a black queer director because you don't really get to see many queer directors, let alone um, black queer directors. It's a great intersection between blackness and queerness. And that's what I like to achieve in a lot of the work that I want to make. And it just really stuck out to me like that. It's like <laughs> I don't have as much of a really like deep, deep, like, you know, explanation like yours was it's like his yours is part of the whole franchise that you can talk hours and hours and hours on this is just like a single movie award-winning movie mind you <laughs> best pi- uh best picture yeah with the oscars announcement and moonlight winning i was like wow if someone can bear their soul on the big screen and to have it win critical acclaim and such awards like a freaking oscar even though whatever (laughs) it it just goes to show that i can definitely make one i can definitely be amongst those ranks because of my history because of my story because of how i am as a person so i feel very strongly connected to that movie very intrinsically so and i also really loved the way it was presented it was based off of a play i forgot the uh, screenwriter's name but it basically i was adapted from an unpublished screenplay that um jenkins basically adapted into the big screen and it was it has like three act structure so you have like the childhood the middle age where you can see all of the uh, changes all of basically all of the gay shit <laughs> start to take hold and then the third act is basically you see the effects of all of that stuff culminate. And what gets me is those final 30 minutes when um I want to keep on saying his name is Tariq, but I don't think it's Tariq. When the main character and his old friend contact each other. And it's been like a long time, haven't really seen each other since about school time has been like years and years and years well yeah because he's also straight out of prison i think mm-hmm. um that was actually one of my favorite moments so i have a, a funny little story not funny but a, <laughs> a cool story about the first time i saw the movie is i was privileged enough to get a screening of the film so i got to watch it before it ever came out in theaters um and it was actually 
by I, I got like 30 movies of the entire year and I got to vote for which ones I liked based off category and Moonlight was my number one looks like he was in a award what do they call it the what you are you part of the academy is there something that you're not telling me there's something I can't say specifically out loud all I'm saying is I was lucky enough to get screenings for a bunch of movies and uh-huh. Moonlight was one of my favorites but I actually I watched it with a friend and there was a moment where it was it was in his um um when he was a kid he comes home and his mom's not there mm-hmm. he's all by himself and he ends up taking a cold bath with a uh, dish soap and I'm not thinking every, anything of it you know I'm just I'm engrossed in the film and I look over, and the friend I'm watching with it sheds a tear. Like, not not like cry, but sheds a little tear. And I kind of stop for a moment. Like, I don't pause the movie, but I kind of stop and was like, you good, dude? And he's like, yeah, it's just this this kind of hitting close to home. And I was like, damn. I don't know. It's to me, because a movie like that really shows my privilege because I've never experienced anything like that. I've never experienced being outcasted as a queer or as a a black person. I've never had to experience hardships that this kid was experienced. So it was actually a very humbling movie for me to sit there and not only just to watch, but to watch with someone that had experienced at least a little bit of what this kid was going through in life. So it was it was a very like I said very humbling and I do think that last scene the very last moment I love where nothing happens it's just a tender moment where again I don't know the main characters cuz I've only seen it once and it was during that screening um the main character kind of breaks down cries and admits everything and tells homeboy uh the other guy the the i can't think of his name but the I, cook yeah um i think his name's kevin i want to was say it kevin i wanted I to say kevin but friend's, friend's name is kevin anyway but he he basically breaks down and after he breaks down he tells them you're the only man i've ever let touch me or you're, you're the only person i've ever touched in mm. that way Instead of doing the stereotypical thing where, you know, like they kiss or there's like a warm embrace, he just sits next to him, wraps his arm around him, and they just have a moment. And you sit there with that moment and it, it then the credits roll. Well, remember, it also cuts to that one scene from him as a kid, mm-hmm. from a main character as a kid in the water. There's oh, yeah, a lot and, of the uses of water yeah. that really resonate with me because of the religious religion and all that because it's like he's learning how to swim it's almost as if he's getting baptized it's nothing that like he's actually getting baptized but it kind of feels like that using water as a way of like it's a rebirthing because that's like the whole idea of baptism is you go in the water one person and come out another yes so it's almost like a, a rebirthing kind of moment and, but I loved the moment. I loved that where it just, you sit there and they comfort one another. There isn't anything sexual. There's nothing provocative. Because uh, any other movie, like, I hate to say this, but like Brokeback Mountain, I feel like does things like that. Where it's like, we're going to, and I hate to say like throw gay in your face, but it's like, hey, we got two men kissing. It, aren't we rebels? No, it's like, People are gay. That's a real thing. Mm-hmm. We don't have to rub this in your face. I'm just showing you that people go through a very, very difficult and hard time with not only being gay, but being in a um, in a bad neighborhood when you're black. Mm. That, to me, it mainly focused on a character and not just a character being gay, if that makes sense. It's and I really study. loved that about this movie. Like, you can call Moonlight kind of a character study about the meanings behind what it means to be queer or what it means to be black and during this time, especially, I think it was in Miami. Yeah, and I want to say it was in Florida. Yeah, yeah. and it really shows a form of black masculinity that (laughs) it shows a form of uh, black masculinity that you don't really see. And I think the difference between this and something like Brokeback Mountain, 
besides like the whole 10, 11 year difference is the fact that now back when Moonlight was, you know, greenlit and made, there is a little bit more acceptance of queerness now. And so it's like, it doesn't have to be quote unquote thrown at your face. It's just, you can tell and you don't really have to um, show it. But it's also like, there's a lot of chains I still there are bound to it because if there are more like black men kissing in the same form of Brook Map Mountain or something, it probably would have gotten hit with an NC seventeen rating, and we wouldn't get anything. Yeah, and no, I'm not. All. I'm not saying because Brokeback Mountain is groundbreaking for allowing more films to be accepted, more more uh, queer acceptance in films in Hollywood in mainstream Hollywood. Because there's always been a lot of gay subtext in yeah, media, but and all that. to me, just rewatching Brokeback Mountain, it it really feels like a film that was made because it's a taboo subject where moonlight really just feels like they're trying to give you a, a, a window look like you're from the outside looking in to the hardships that come with, you know, all of this. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that. Um, it just really means a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I feel really bad because like both of my movies aren't nowhere near as personal because I, I can literally see like while you're talking about this, your demeanor and you had to like hold back tears a couple of times. I feel bad because none of my movies mean like that much to me, like in a personal level as yours obviously well, are. I, like I said, I take more of my work personally for some weird reason. So it's hard for me to kind of like look back and look at things more objectively because I feel like a lot of myself is in my work and, and my interests and all of that. So like, I'm kind of, I'm not gonna say private, but I'm kind of like, I, I'm kind of protective yeah. <laughs> of like how I present myself in terms of like my work and in terms of my um, interest related to set work. So of course, is is not gonna be the same for everybody. People have valid reasons for liking whatever movie they like, and it can be from oh, just touched me as a kid to I just like the way a certain actor or a certain shot was made, and those are still very valid reasonings. Yeah. So I'm not gonna like downplay the fact that you really fucking like Godzilla and shit. Well, like that's really no. cool. That's childhood yeah but i'm just saying like i've never had a movie that i've watched that hit me on a personal level like obviously moonlight did for you every movie that i like i like for filmmaking or writing reasons i've never watched a movie i've never experienced a movie that i watch that hit me in a personal way so i'm i'm actually i'm a little jealous um <laughs> please don't like please don't save yourself the embarrassment of like having to wipe your tears after a freaking movie and just like have to like yeah no it was fine it was cool and yeah like, well yeah. i mean i've i've wiped away tears before but it's mainly from like either a character i really like or like really good acting um so I'm yeah. just a sucker for a good story and it just kind of shows how representation matters and that's that's kind of it yeah. for me for that first film. So what was your uh, second one that you like? Well, um, again, doesn't hit personal. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this actually, this movie here is the probably, I had to think about this for a minute because at first I didn't want to talk about it because it's the, anyone who knows me, this is the obvious choice. It is my number one favorite movie of all time. And so I, I tried my damnedest to think about another film, which I almost landed on Best Men. That's a really good movie that I do want to take the time to talk about eventually. But I landed on 1993, originally writ well, written and originally supposed to be directed by Kevin Jarre, before essentially Disney was like, yeah, no, we're getting rid of you and we're getting another director who was uh, George Cosmatos. And uh, Kurt Russell was like, look, 
you're being a dick. Here's how we're going to film this, and you're not going to say anything about it. You just film my movie and get it done by December like uh, like Disney wants. And that movie is 1993's Tombstone. Wait, you mean to tell me that Kurt Russell basically said, fuck this, I'm the director now? Dude! Okay. <laughs> no, there's a whole story behind this, and it's actually, remember when I talked to you about how my biggest fear is writing a script that I love, and then selling it to a production company just to have them butcher it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This happened to this movie. Kevin Jar wrote a script for Tombstone, and... It was helmed as one of the greatest Western scripts ever written. It was so good that um, Kevin Costner wanted to do his own version of the film, um, but focus mainly on Wyatt Earp instead of the side characters like Kevin Jarre did. Kevin Jarre focused on everyone, including... Like, Wyatt Earp was just a pawn in a much bigger scheme, Mm. where... Kevin Costner wanted to play Wyatt Earp and have it focused mainly on Wyatt Earp. And so uh, with no budging, Kevin Costner was just like, all right, I'll make my own film. And so he did, which competed with Tombstone. Tombstone made more money. Um, Kevin Jar was given the greenlit by a byproduct pr- uh, production company, which was basically Disney, but it was by a different name. I can't think of the name right now. Is it like Dimension or? Maybe it could have been. But I forgot it- what films that were under disney during the 90s there are quite a few of them but um it's technically a disney movie or disney produced it for i want to say like 25 million it was not much at all um considering the kevin costner movie was 65 it's just the fact that you said 25 million not that much and it's like you're right that's not that much it's really not for a big budget western movie that's not a lot of money mm mm-hmm so, and you had uh, competitors like Geronimo and, uh, of course, the Wyatt Earp movie that took a lot of um, a lot of the resources away from the Tombstone um, set. Mm. So the um, the costume designer Joseph, and I can't think of his name, but I met him on the set of Salem, and I was so happy because I knew he was the guy from Tombstone. And I actually, he was like, he was, uh, he walked over and he was like, "Oh no, that that coat's not gonna work for you. We're gonna get you this one." And I was like, "Oh, thanks, man. By the way, you did an amazing job on Tombstone." And he goes, "Oh, thank you." So, <laughs> made me happy. I and, love that little accent that you did too. Yeah, it's very posh. Anyway, um, so. Basically, what they did was they got cowboy reenactors and they used their own equipment. And they were actually a lot of the background guys. They used their own equipment, their own horses. A lot of them slept in tents the entire shoot. What the fuck? No. Okay. And then within the first four weeks, Kevin Jar, who wrote the script, who Kurt Russell, Sam Elliott, and uh, Val Kilmer said was one of the best scripts they have ever read, he directed or shot a couple of scenes within four weeks and everyone including the production company said yeah this is not going to work you were you're a screenwriter you're not a director whatsoever please allow us to help you we'll let you keep directing but allow us to help you and like take some input please for the love of god take some input and he's like it's my way or the highway and disney was basically like all right highway then you're fired wow kicked him off the set but and I tried to hire uh, the Die Hard director. Mm. But the Die Hard director was like, I need a two-week shutdown to prepare. And they were like, no, we're not shutting down. We have to continue filming because it has to be released in December. There is no shutting down. And so he declined, and they ended up getting um, George P. Cosmatos, who did um, uh, Rambo 2 and Cobra. And essentially, Kurt Russell rewrote the script to like not rewrote but took a lot of the script out to fit in with uh the schedule that disney wanted and told cosmatos like here's the shot set like here's the shot list just get this done we need to get this movie done and he actually took a lot out um that had to do with uh, him, his character himself, Wyatt Earp. There's a lot more Wyatt Earp in the movie. Mm. And he took a lot of that out just to keep the actors happy. So essentially, 
all the actors, and it's a star-studded set. I mean, you had uh, Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton, uh, uh, Michael Bean, Booth, uh, Powers Booth, Hayden, uh, Thomas Hayden Church, uh, um, uh, Christopher Lane, the guy from Don't Breathe, Ooh. Uh, Michael Rooker, uh, Billy, Bob Thor- power, Billy Bob Thornton. Set. Dude, so many people are in this movie. It's fantastic, fantastic movie. Um, so they finally, basically, none of the actors needed to be told how to act. The director was just there to make it look pretty. That's all he was there for. The actors needed no supervision, from what I hear. And uh, the cinematographer and the director got into it. The cinematographer was, I want to say, was William H. Uh, Fraker. Fraker? Fraker? Uh, anyway, famous cinematographer. Movie looks beautiful. He quit three times. Quit three times. <laughs> This movie was a mess and should not be as good as it turned out to be. Even Sam Elliott said that if he was presented with the final version of the script rather than the original, he never would have said yes to this movie. Oh my god, this set sounds cursed. The set was a nightmare. And if it wasn't for Kurt Russell, like every every actor from interviews that I have seen or read says that if it wasn't for Kurt Russell, this movie would have never been made. It's an amazing movie. It is one of the most well-written, well-shot, character-driven movies. Some of the most quotable lines ever. It's the movie that got me not only into the writing of movies, it got me into westerns. I did not like westerns because most westerns I've saw, my mom's a huge John Wayne fan. So most of the westerns I saw were like John Wayne movies or like old Gunsmoke or Bonanza and stuff like that. And I was mm-hmm. like, westerns are stupid. Watch Tombstone. No, sir. Westerns can be amazing. And now I'm a western fan. I love like Unforgiven, Open Range, uh, The Man with No Face trilogy. Westerns are good, dude. And it all started with Tombstone. And my love for writing all started for Tombstone. Okay, I really need to watch this because holy crap. It's so good. Also, you're right about the uh, cinematographer. Um, The distributor, Buena Vista. So you're right. It's basically Disney. Basically Disney. And yeah, no, everything was posed for that film not to be made. Like, it should have been a disaster. And it is, it's a cult, I hate to say a cult classic because it did well when it came out in theaters, but it's like with VHS releases and there's a niche little group of people out there that are diehard Tombstone fans. It's, it is such a good movie. Such a good movie. Wow. Well, Val Kilmer, it's one of his best roles as Doc Holliday and he almost didn't land it. Um, the writer, Kevin Jar, mm. wrote it specifically for uh, Willem Dafoe. Oh. Willem Dafoe was supposed to be Doc Holliday. That would have been a good role. I'm sorry. No, like, when you watch the movie, you're going to say, no, no one could have been this except for Val Kilmer. Because basically, Disney, or, yeah, Disney, I'm just going to say Disney. Disney was like, yeah, no, we're. it's not going to be Willem Dafoe. It's going to be Val Kilmer. It, it has to be Val Kilmer. And, what did it have against William Dafoe? Uh, well, Val Kilmer has already proven himself uh, because he's been in a lot of Disney property, like oh, Disney movies. Yeah. Um, uh, like, but he, God, oh, so good, Man. so good. There's a scene where a guy is like, like, like a bunch of the cowboy gang surround Wyatt Earp and are about to rush him. And Wyatt Earp pulls out a gun and says, you may be able to get me in a rush, but not before I turn your head into a canoe and threatens to shoot someone. Followed by Doc Holliday coming out and is like, you're not going to kill my friend. And Homeboy is like, ah, it's the drunk piano player. He's probably so drunk he's seeing double and pulls out a knife. Fucking Doc Holliday pulls out another gun and says, I got two guns, one for each of you. Oh my God. The writing is so good. Oh, God, I had to watch that scene. And I was looking it up, like, all of the different names and stuff. And, oh, my God, the costume design. I love the way there's just, like, the four black outfits just, like, 
covering up. It's like, almost like they're like nuns. Yeah. And that's really cool costume design. And another thing I liked is they didn't want to do like, cause most of the old 60s and 70s westerns, they based it off of old photos, which, of course, old photos are like black and white, grainy brown, mm-hmm. whatever. So they used a lot of toned uh, coloring, like brown, white, black, stuff like that. They said no. Like, historians said no. That's not actually how they dressed. They dressed in a lot of colors. So having the uh, the actual cowboy reenactors come in and allow them to basically reproduce their own clothing. It is visually stunning too. There is so many bright, vibrant colors going on in the wardrobe. Oh, wow. This movie is amazing. It is, it is my number one favorite movie of all time between the action, which there's barely any, like there's few action. There, I wouldn't say there's barely any because there is action, especially like the last 30 minutes is nothing but one long action montage. <laughs> but the action in there is very subtle. It makes way for beautifully well-written characters with amazing dialogue. Oh, so good. Such a good movie. Mm. Okay, I really need to watch that then. Yes. If you, if you have not seen it, I will. we will watch that movie. Bet. We'll, we'll do a parking lot review of that movie. Bet. Bet. <laughs> so good. So, so my second movie is something I am not as, like, you know, intrinsically attached to on a personal level. But this one still stuck out to me when I was a kid. So this movie that I'm about to bring up, it was a class assignment that we watched. So we watched it in class and we had to do an analysis of it. This movie was called M by Fritz Lang back in the 1930s. It was a little bit soon after Metropolis was made. So I'm kind of one of those cool historian types when it comes to film. I'm a big fan of, you know, German expressionism and all of the older um, German films that led to the creation of the horror genre as we know it. This one was kind of more film noir. One of the last, uh, one of the last, not talkies, but one of, mm, it was kind of sort of a talkie, but it was um, one of the, I feel like uh, Fritz Lang's greatest films. This one is a basically a underground murder mystery one man against the whole almost everyone in this city. So basically spoiler alert, also content warning because I'm about to bring up kind of messed up things. So basically it was about this um one dude who basically preys on children and and a lot of um people in the city, a lot of people in the city, they catch up, like they, they catch on to him. So basically, it turns from like, okay, he's preying on children, killing them, and all of that shit, and going to a whole wild goose chase. The police are against them. Even the gangsters that are there in the city as well are against him. So basically, like becomes this all this one person, and it lends to starting some of the tropes that are in the horror genre because if i remember correctly this goes into a whole mental illness illness equals killing children kind of thing if i think uh it ends in a similar way to how psycho ends where it's like a court case kind of thing so it's like oh yeah no he has mental illness let's not you know let's not do anything and it's kind of like the moral thing was like, how do you treat mentally ill people who are committing crimes, basically? So that really stuck out to me because it was one of those films that it just was more striking visually, story-wise, filmmaking-wise. Shout out to my old film studies teacher in high school, Miss Mangum. Hope she's doing okay and or listening to this. You had film studies in high school? Yeah, okay, so uh, at this high school I went to, that was like maybe like the first or second year that the film studies class was there. Basically got put in as an elective. 
so we were basically like watching um film studies cl- uh, classes watching films making scripts like making videos because there was also a sponsorship that we got to where we use like the little flip back when you remember when those flip uh video cameras were very popular no i remember back when we didn't have cool shit in high school see <laughs> i had the- I, just- I had theater I had and theater like theater too. wasn't even cool. You know what we did in theater? What did you do in theater? We watched movies, and like most of the time, it would be like some bullshit Disney that some like p- uh pampered little princess type chick would bring. <laughs> like, hey, let's watch this movie, and then it would be like Bratz or something, and then it'd be my turn, and I'd bring like Quentin Tarantino or Christopher Nolan films. You can't bring those to school. Those are for adults. <laughs> They'd be like, what is this? No. So, like. My we... teacher didn't have a problem with it. Oh, good. We watched Inception, and then it made me so mad. I We watched Inception, and no one got it except for me and my teacher, and we spent 30 minutes at the end of the class trying to explain it to people. And oh. it's like, just understand. Why can't you be as smart as me? <laughs> Ooh, Inception is a hard pill to swallow. But with this movie, honestly, with the whole class in general, was basically just a whole opening of, holy crap, people can do this for a living. We wrote scripts. We used Celtics. We basically made little tiny films. And I already knew the teacher, Miss Mangum, from doing drama club stuff, too. So we were basically, like, building sets, making and practicing for films for films for um plays and so well and it was just a really cool experience um one thing i did like about like i said i was a big fan of the whole german films because we talked about metropolis and it made me interested in metropolis because i remember the poster for metropolis featuring i forgot the name of the thing but you know what i'm talking about y'all know what i talk about when i mean metropolis the whole little robot thing that that's what I associate a lot with Fritz Long, but this other movie I associate with him because it felt like a, it felt like if, um, Dow M for Murder, was like just foreign and took way more liberties. So, basically, just it was like the whole thing, and I was also like, dang, he's out here killing children and shit. That's wild, man. <laughs> like. As you can tell, I feel less personally, like, intrinsically related to this thing, but I really liked it because it was just stuck out to me, and I really liked the fact that it was just basically just storytelling. It was very engaging, very much so just you can see how things are going, even though we not don't understand the language. Also, you know, me watching anime, I'm used to subtitles. <laughs> so I was basically just... I was chilling. We were cool. And it was just a really cool thing. And it reminds me a lot of Psycho from Alfred Hitchcock. So I feel like there's a little bit of, of that influence, even though this is still around the same time where um they started their both their careers, even though Fritz Long had a few years on them. You can tell the dif- the difference in, you know, influence from both filmmakers in M and in Psycho and whatnot. So I really like that. And I just, I just really like it. <laughs> that's kind of it for me. And that's got another reason why I maybe want to be become a filmmaker is because of the fact that you're just like, bam, this is a whole cool concept. You can just have everything coming together, just building up all the suspense until you get to this climax. And there's kind of like, you don't get the, you don't get the brief, but here's the coming down. So it, that was like kind of like the basic building blocks of a suspense movie for me, so cool. I mean, that that's cool because I've always associated Peeping Tom with being like the original slasher that inspired Psycho, but uh, I've never even heard of this movie, so that's actually that's cool. Yeah, I get to finally use my degree. <laughs> <laughs> so like a lot of the older uh, films, especially a lot of the foreign films from Europe, they attribute a lot to how Hollywood and a lot of different genres of films so like it's very cool to look at and to do a little bit of history on yeah there's a lot of um as you become more of a 
movie snob, I guess you would say, you, you start to see that most of the concepts and movie ideas that we recognize as Hollywood coming up with, no. Foreign films have been doing this for the longest of times. Hollywood just made it popular. Yeah, and all of these industries basically formed at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, movies have only really been around for a little bit over 100 years. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, 2021. Yeah, is basically just the 100th anniversary of some of the first uh, talkies. Not the first talkies. Some of the really, really big um films. Like, you know, a little bit after Birth of a Nation. Eh! Or, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> well, you got the, you got, I forget when it came out, but uh, Phantom of the Opera, the first one was a 1920 film. Mm-hmm. And that's whew, so good. And people forget that a lot of the stories that we have for horror, visual representations of horror, come from those movies back in the 1920s. Like, look at freaking Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Nosferatu is a prime example of having cultural relevancy over over 100 years from a character like especially with like you know other characters like frankenstein bride of frankenstein dracula like all of those iconic horror icons those classic horror icons they they've been over 100 years and a lot of foreign films are the reason why we have those aesthetics especially like german expressionism because you know scarcity because of germany being poor just before you know nazism became a thing so Mm-hmm. just something to think about yeah one of my favorite german films was a uh, vampire i really like that one have you ever seen it i want to say i've seen it for a class but like i didn't really pay that much attention to it but i think i know what you're talking about it's really good it's got one of my favorite like shadow effects in a movie i've ever seen it's so cool like there's a scene where like you follow a shadow while it's dancing and doing a bunch of weird things and then like it cuts or if you follow the shadow into a scene of a guy sitting there Mm. and the shadow does its little thing as it approaches the guy and then the shadow sits down and then the guy sits up and the shadow is now attached to the guy it's so cool especially for something they did back in the 20s it's so cool man a lot of these effects (laughs) man i feel like we as current filmmakers are not smart enough to come up with these same Yeah, it, like, well, it makes me think, like, okay, I know how we can do that now, but how did they do that back then? Shit, Ugh. same and, thing with uh, George, uh, with uh, George Malus, or and Man on the Moon with all of those different yeah. effects. Like now, I'm looking at him like, oh, so he used a fishbowl. <laughs> I was like, oh, he just basically just put a, was it, I think it's like plastic. Uh, some wood or something, and basically just put a whole bunch of shit on this man's face and put a coke can, or and something, or beer can yeah. for a fucking rocket, and you're just like, wow, this is amazing what they were able to do, and how innovative they were back in the 1910s and 1920s. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, I guess that's it. Yeah, that's I've I've talked about my two films, which were basically me just talking about my love of the script of like dialogue and story writing and stories and the first movie that got me into like franchise first movie that really got me into i guess not just foreign films but like films in general Mm. and then you touched more on your style of film making and a movie that was very personal to you you can also tell how different we think when it comes to film. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really cool to hear all of your your processes for why you like this film and what makes you want to pull inspiration from them in order to make films on your own. So that's really cool to hear all of that. Yeah. And it, honestly, seeing you get emotional about a movie, it makes me it it makes me feel bad that i've never felt the closest thing to feeling that emotional is when i saw nico robbins uh flashback in one piece if that (laughs) if that tells you anything that tells me a lot (laughs) but i'm just a sap and hearing like hearing all of this if you know me or once you get to know me it'll become all obvious so it won't be anything (laughs) normal (laughs) this is all normal at this point so it's whatever yeah, so I guess yeah, we're we're done here. Um 
What are we doing next? We're doing uh, Blood Rage next. We're doing our Thanksgiving special. Woo! So, of course, you can look us up at all of our social medias. We have a little link tree that's going to be in any bio on YouTube. And we are also on every, almost every podcast platform. You can say from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to Stitcher. So, if you can't hit us up on YouTube, you can also hit up on our socials, like our... Um, Instagram, our Twitter, Letterboxd, you know, and Facebook especially. So just, you know, hit us up. If you have any questions, if you want to just kind of chat with us about film. Any suggestions on movies we should mm -hmm. uh, watch and review? You can just hit us up and we'll be happy to respond back and to have a fun time, as I always say. Yeah, and in the comment section below, just uh, tell us what your favorite movies, the the films that inspired you to get into filmmaking or inspired you to uh, watch movies, like get into just movies in general. Uh, we'd like to know. So you could hit do that in the comment section below or on any of our social medias. We would love to hear back from y'all. And until next time, I've been Heath. And I've been Jay. And this has been Host of Hard.